Thank you for downloading this episode of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. We'll get things started in just a few moments. TrueCar.com is changing car buying forever. Yes, every day TrueCar users receive negotiation-free guaranteed savings, some features not available in all states. In the first three months of this year, over 126,000 cars were sold by the TrueCar Certified Dealer Network. TrueCar users save an average of $3,078 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy a car, just follow these three easy steps. First, go to TrueCar.com and find out what other people paid for the car you're looking for. Then register at TrueCar.com to see upfront pricing information and lock in your savings. The third step is simple. Just print out your True Car Savings Certificate and take it to the True Car Certified Dealer for a better, hassle-free car buying experience. Remember, every day, True Car users receive negotiation-free, guaranteed savings. Save time, save money, and never overpay. Visit TrueCar.com today. That's TrueCar.com. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. This is the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. I spy, I see through everything, but I know, I don't know anything, and on cold nights. You're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. I'm here in the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with the actor James Vanderbeek. The fictional Camden College in New Hampshire is the stand-in for the actual Bennington College in Vermont in most of my novels and short stories. It's where Clay returns from in the opening pages of Less Than Zero and where he returns to at the end, though unlike the movie version, without Blair. It's where most of the cast of Glamorama went to and the deadly conspiracy that engulfs their lives really begins in that tiny liberal arts college years earlier. It's where the Brett Easton Ellis character in Lunar Park, now in his 40s, occasionally reminisces about when he realized is that a classmate of his, Mitchell Allen, has recently moved to Midland, the same suburb where Brett and his family reside in a haunted house on Elsinore Lane. And Camden is the same place that Patrick Bateman's younger brother, Sean, attends in the fall and early winter of 1985 in the Rules of Attraction. In fact, it's through Sean, a handsome campus drug dealer playing poor in that novel, that we end up meeting Patrick. Throughout the novel, we are supposed to believe Sean's very cool, tough guy interior monologues as the truth of what he is experiencing and how he is presenting himself, though through the voices of different characters in the book, another Sean Bateman begins to emerge until Sean finally starts to break down. And revealing himself to us, we realize that he's actually much wealthier than we thought he was. And on a trip to New York to visit his dying father, he meets up with his older brother, whom he loathes. Yes, Patrick Bateman makes his first appearance in a cafeteria in a hospital late at night, where Sean finally explodes in rage after Patrick exposes Sean's reality to himself and to us. 
Bennington had a profound impact on me the four years I went there, and in such a way that it made me want to write about the place. It was the only place I wanted to go after my college counselor in high school told me about it. She mentioned Bennington after looking over my grades and my SAT scores, and after I told her I only cared about going someplace with a good creative writing program and a good music program because I was planning on being a double major, and I wasn't interested in anything else, just like I hadn't been interested in anything else during my entire high school career. I had already written two novels and was working on what ultimately would become Less Than Zero, and I wanted to go somewhere far away from Los Angeles, unlike many of my friends who were going to stay in Los Angeles and either attend UCLA or USC. Bennington didn't care about your GPA, and they didn't even accept SAT scores. Often they looked at samples the student would submit of their work, whether it was paintings, drawings, manuscripts, stories, tapes of your music, whatever it was you were interested in pursuing during your four years in the hills of Vermont as the main indicator of whether they would accept you or not. Bennington was interested in passionate, self-motivated students. I visited the campus that spring and fell in love with it and began attending it in early September, three months after I graduated high school. This was in the early 80s before Just Say No and more crucially pre-AIDS. And the sex and drug atmosphere from that period was pretty heavy at Bennington, though isn't it always a college? As was the drinking. Bennington during those years had an on-campus pub and kegs were being tapped daily around the commons and in front of a few of the rowdier houses. This was, of course, before the drinking age in Vermont was raised to 21 in 1986. It's a small campus, maybe 650 students, tops at any given time, and it is isolated. And that combination means that you knew everyone else. You were forced somewhat to connect, and you really had no privacy, which for some of us was fine. We were there to pursue our craft, and after spending most of my life at a very small prep school in the San Fernando Valley, I had no problems with the intimacy of Bennington, and I had no problems with the fact that everyone knew who you slept with. Sex in all its forms became the focal point for many of us there. After I finished Lesson Zero in 1984, I started making notes for a campus novel starring a fictional Bennington and writing about my generation, the kids in this particular historical moment, the Reagan 80s, but also a novel about sex, love, relationships, the fleetiness of the college experience. This wasn't going to be a novel about the teacher-student relationship, going to classes, competitiveness. It wasn't going to be a novel about academia, but a novel about bacchanalia. It was going to be about the social side of campus life, the parties, the drugs, the hookups, the hangovers, because I wanted to write a campus novel that I had never been able to find before. And so I based it on things I had experienced that affected me a lot, and that was mainly about how you could trace basically any sexual relationship at Bennington and find a kind of, I guess a three degrees of separation would reveal itself. It often seemed that everything sexual at Bennington kind of formed this link that led to someone else, a daisy chain, a kind of LaRonde-like narrative. And so I was using three characters as representatives of this idea, each of them narrating their own story, Sean Bateman, Lauren Hind. Paul Denton, along with a mosaic of secondary figures who would be acting as commentators involved with each of the three main protagonists. It covered one term, so a suicide, check, a suicide attempt, check, an abortion, check, though this did not make it into the movie, uh, a drug deal gone bad, check, and the pain of unrequited love, which all three protagonists experienced to one degree or another during that term at Camden. 
Everyone has their own truth, and they rarely overlap. Once the book was published, and ever since, certain readers gravitate to different interpretations. Gay readers tend to think that Paul Denton was telling the truth about his affair with a very hetero Sean Bateman, where Sean doesn't refer to it once during the entire novel. Lauren's feelings about Victor Ward, off on semester, drugging and fucking his way throughout Europe, we find out near the end of the book not only were not reciprocal, but Victor really doesn't even remember her, and so on and so on. A tough novel to adapt into a film because of the unreliability of the voices. Certain characters remember one thing one way, while others remember things radically different. Once the book had been optioned for the movies, I became involved during the mid-90s, writing pretty much all of the early drafts for the Rules of Attraction screenplay. And they were fine, but I had to make choices about how to present this literary material. Material conceived as a novel, and not for another medium. And I might have been burned out by the material itself. One draft included many scenes played out two different ways, but the script became overlong, and I was never really thrilled with any of those versions. And then Roger Avery, who had co-written Pulp Fiction and directed only one feature, the Eric Stoltz Paraset thriller Killing Zoe, suddenly appeared and said that he had to write and direct the movie. The novel was one of his favorites, and so we did the adaptation and cracked it in 2001, and the movie went into production at the University of Redlands with a pretty amazing cast. The stunning Shannon Sossaman, the equally stunning Ian Summerholder, Kate Bosworth, Jessica Biel, Clifton Collins Jr., Kit Pardue, Swoozie Curse and Faye Dunaway, Thomas Ian Nicholas, who, yes, played Mitchell Allen, uh, Jay Baruchel and Casper Van Dien as Patrick Bateman. The scenes that Roger Avery shot with Casper Van Dien as Patrick Bateman were not included in the final cut. And at the center of all this was James Vanderbeek as Sean Bateman in an unapologetically nasty, resolutely NC-17 feel-bad college movie. Yes, Dawson would be starring in this movie. I was somewhat surprised, as were many others, when this casting was announced, but I was also delighted, and I knew that Roger Avery was not going to tamp down the dirtier aspects of this movie just because James had agreed to star. And there was also the idea that James maybe precisely took this role to erase to a degree, the memory of Dawson, just as Leonardo DiCaprio became briefly involved with American Psycho, flirting with playing Patrick Bateman after becoming famous for playing another Dawson, that's Jack Dawson from Titanic. James gave a wonderful performance in the movie that called on him to simulate sex with Kate Bosworth, Jessica Biel, and Shannon Sossaman, as well as make out in close-up with Ian Somerhalder. And also, according to Roger Avery, Ryan Reynolds, I think, was at one time supposed to play that role. As well as simulate masturbating twice, tripping on shrooms, dealing coke, picking his nose, attempting suicide, pissing his pants, getting beaten up by drug dealers, having to watch Fred Savage shoot up, and perhaps most provocatively wiping his ass. There's a kind of savagery to this performance, a young actor hungry to prove himself to change his image to a degree. And this is also a young actor who was still playing Dawson while he was playing Bateman, and we'll talk about what that all meant in a minute. So I saw the first rough screening of The Rules of Attraction on the Sony lot in Culver City, I think in February of 2002. I got there not knowing what to expect. The theater was packed with cast and crew, and I just quickly ducked in after the lights went down and sat in the front row. And two hours went by, and I actually loved the movie. The real star of the movie was Roger Avery, who made the most visually inventive, uncompromising, and gorgeous movie about college life ever made in the United States. I thought the visual design was very playful, crazily beautiful at times, with great uses of split-screen montage. And I liked 
like the florid theatricality of it. It stops, it starts, it rewinds, taking place in some nether post-80s world with an 80s soundtrack, but it's not 2002 exactly either. I'm not sure where we are. And it's not a realistic movie. It's highly stylized. And within that stylization, the three main performances have to adjust to that stylization, and then they breathe. And sometimes the stylization works, and sometimes when Roger pushes it into the realm of the absurd, the effects can be somewhat off. But mostly it works. The Rules of Attraction remains my favorite of the adaptations that have been made from my books. So, James, I guess I want to talk about the casting of this movie. I want to talk about how this role came to you. And of all the people that Roger wanted to go to, why do you think you were near or at the top of his list? I mean, I'm just trying to think of where you were in 2001 when mm-hmm. this offer came to you. What was your headspace? Why did this speak to you? Um, it's Yeah, 2001, I had been... Um I'd done Varsity Blues, which is a number one, you know, box office hit. Uh, And then the following hiatus, I had done a movie that was hastily thrown together uh, called Texas Rangers at Dimension. They were going to reinvent the Western genre. Right, which cost about $40 million to make and then grow something like. I think it it made $40 in the box office. Yeah, they held on to it for a year. They re edited it. They put me on The Tonight Show twice to promote it and then just dumped it. Um, I think there was some political stuff going on too. They wanted to kind of scorn the guy who'd left who de- who developed it there. Um, and then I was supposed to be a part of this big uh, studio film uh, called Behind Enemy Lines, which they ended up making right. with Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, that was going to be Gene Hackman and me. And then it got pushed back. Couldn't do it that hiatus again. Any film that I did had to fit in between, you know, seasons of Dawson's Creek. So, which is basically you're shooting Dawson's Creek during that time from when to when? From like nine months out of the year. And it's from it's from uh, God. When was it? We had the summers off, but like towards the, towards the end of the summer. So like in July, we'd go back, mm-hmm. okay. and then we'd shoot until God. I, so I don't you, even know. So you had that window to make a film. I had a window, and the film had to fit in the middle of that. So you know, aircraft carriers and and, and army and all that kind of stuff. That uh, that fell apart, and I was bummed about that. And I had an audition for this Todd Solon's movie, which right. was called the the Untitled. Uh, Todd Solon's movie 2000 TS2K right was the uh, was the working title for it and um, I went in and did this audition and did basically my impression of Todd which I think everybody does in, in his movies to some degree uh, that's so, so you doing an impression of Todd would be just I can't picture it oh it's really it's quite something <laughs> okay. it's really it's right. just he's got such a sweetness to him yes it's of course um, Todd does it's a, <laughs> Everything, everything Todd ever said to me. Um, we were doing a scene and we were looking at a, at a bit of dialogue, and he goes, well, "Well, the good thing about this writer is he works cheap." Mm-hmm. Referring to himself, of course. But you, but so you read the Todd Solon script. So I read, and, and what was a part again? If you it tell was me. it was a very theatrical guy who was in doing theater, and he kind of loved this woman, but he wasn't sure in this woman. Uh, it was Selma Blair played the girl, mm-hmm. and the girl rejected him at one point. And everything was just very heavy with him, and it was very... And he talked about being... Like having a learning disability. There are all these great scenes, and then uh, I was cast in it, and it was big news. And then I got a call from my agent saying, Todd wants to... Uh, put in a scene in which you're having sex with a guy would you be okay with that and i thought well it's todd solon so i mean i yeah why not 
Um, so we did. And there are all kinds of rumors surrounding the scene, too. Yes. Well, we'll debunk these rumors. What is the sex act that you're doing? And who are you getting screwed by him or what's happening? No, the sex act is uh, um, you close up on my face. I'm fucking somebody. I'm on top. Mm-hmm. And then you pull back and you realize it's a guy. Mm-hmm. I finish. Who was the actor? They it was an actor. He's not a famous actor. Um but it was kind of, kind of a kind of schlubby looking guy. Okay. Like it wasn't, it was not Ian Summerhalder. Okay. It was right, the other right. end of that spectrum. Right. Um, and so I roll off of him and, uh, and I pull my pants up and I walk out the door and he says, uh, so you, you'll call me. And I look at him like, that's, that's not what this is. And I walk out and that was it. Mm-hmm. Rumors were that it was a gang rape scene <laughs> in a locker room. That's what I had heard too. Yes. Um, all this stuff. And then I did, <laughs> I remember I was doing ADR for that movie and I had such a great experience because it really was kind of, uh, after having all this commercial success to do this tiny little movie, mm-hmm. uh, with Todd to be taking these chances and, and a really good movies, movie. really interesting, yes. yeah, intricate yeah. scenes. I just, I'd said to him, uh, you know, other movies that I've done, I've I, like. It's been all about what is this going to make at the box office. I said this. I don't even care how this. You know, what the outcome of this is. I had such a great time working on it with you. I just want to say thank you. Um, I was subsequently completely cut out of the film. <laughs> and this was the other thing too that really hurt was it was the script was uh, 1985 on a college campus, and then halfway through the shooting script, at about page 50, it that storyline stopped. It was intricate multiple characters I want to say like six seven characters interweaving mm, yeah. and then that stopped and then it started year 2000 in a high school mm-hmm. completely different character the only there was one reference about the Selma Blair's character where the guys in the 2000 version had seen the girl getting fucked by her professor and mm-hmm. this whole thing I didn't understand how the two pieces fit together but I didn't really need to um, for what I had to do on it so I thought oh, I'll, I'll understand when I see it well Todd had decided um, it didn't work either and so he just cut, completely cut the entire first half of the movie. Um, but of course, I was the most famous person in it. And there had been rumors that I had a gay sex scene. So it all became like, oh, he was terrible. They had to cut the whole thing out. Um, and the script was very heavily guarded. So nobody knew you know, how much had actually been, um, been cut out. And so <laughs> I had read The Rules of Attraction. Um, I'd had a meeting with Roger, who I loved, and I loved. It was one of the best written screenplays I'd ever read up until that point. And I sat down with Roger. We had a meeting. We talked about movies we liked. We talked about Fight Club, which was like my favorite movie at the time. Right. We talked about the ending, and I remember feeling somewhat unsatisfied with the ending. And, and Roger saying, "Well, you know what the problem is," and he was like, "Roger's solution to the ending was to reinvent the entire film." And I thought, "Wow, this guy's really this guy's really onto something." Um, and he and I just bonded kind of instantly. And so I called my agent. I said, listen, I loved Roger. I loved Rules of Attraction. My only uh, my hesitation is that this, um, you know, it's another dark college movie. I just did one. And his response <laughs> was, uh, yeah, bad news on that. Todd is going to uh, cut that whole section of the movie. So take a look at Rules. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. What? What are you talking about? And he said, yeah, he decided it didn't look so it didn't work. So just kind of, it was it was like the coldest <laughs> news like delivery of news ever. Um what how did you process that? 
Well, I, I said my first thought was, okay, well, you know what? It'll be on the DVD, so it'll be like this cult thing that'll be. And in his response, I, I kid you not, was, uh, no, Todd actually wanted to burn the footage, so it, so nobody's ever going to see it. So take a look. I was like, mm. dude, you got to give me a second to process this because this was like I thought this was going to be like a whole new direction for my career, and I was really proud of the work that I did. I mean, to the point where the only the reason I had the meeting with Roger was it was uh, somebody at New Line had seen an early cut of the Todd Solon's movie and said, wow, there's a whole other side to James that nobody knows about. He'd be great for Rules of Attraction. So that movie actually got me Rules of Attraction, even though only you know a few select test audiences saw it. Right. And so, uh, and obviously, so, it fit your schedule. You know, and it didn't fit my schedule because oh, it, it didn't. That's it right. It did not. We right. could. They could not. I had gone from the, sum, the previous summer before. I just me saying yes to a movie was enough to get a, a seventy-five million dollar studio action movie made. To then, Texas Rangers comes out and does nothing. Hmm. I get cut out of Todd Solon's, and the following hiatus, Roger couldn't get Rules of Attraction made with me as a star for like five million. I mean, it, it went south that quickly in terms of like my financeability. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't put the movie together in time. We ended up having to shoot it while I was doing uh, like season four or five of Dawson's Creek. So That's I right. would shoot Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on Dawson's Creek. Rules of Attraction would take their weekends on Monday and Tuesday and figure out something to shoot without me on Wednesday. Then I would fly, because there's no direct flight from Wilmington to LA. I would take the nine-hour trip. Uh, shoot Rules of Attraction <laughs> Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then fly back to Wilmington. And it was this crazy. And in a way, thank God there was a nine-hour gap in between those two roles because they could not have been more different. I mean, to the point where I was shooting the scene where where uh, Dawson's father dies while I was shooting the Rules of Attraction. So I'm playing this guy in Rules who is unable to cry. And I'm bawling my eyes out on the other gig on, on the other coast. It was, it, was, it was a crazy, weird headspace to be in. But also, I guess when you're shooting a movie like that, I guess you aren't really a part of the, I don't know, the camaraderie or the, the thing that goes on in making the film. Yeah. I mean, it, you must have felt it must have done something for the characters as well, that kind of sense of alienation mm-hmm. from not being there seven days or out of the week in mm-hmm. Redlands with the cast and the crew and I think it I think it really helped add to Sean's narcissism too honestly the fact that I would just come in and do my stuff and it was all built around me and there were very few days where I would show up and then you know shoot first and last or wait around like every time I was on set I was working constantly so um yeah that that schedule did did revolve around me um the one person I felt the real I mean I felt camaraderie with the people I worked with closely though I mean mm-hmm. it's, I had a great time working with Shannon mm-hmm. who was very uh, green in the best way at that point in her completely. career completely I totally agree with it was that like, that's the best I, way to put it it was like working with an animal and I mean that as the highest mm-hmm. compliment in that you don't you can't always get her to do what you want her right. to do but whatever she's going to do it's completely honest and at that point I was working in TV, you know, in like season five of a show where everybody knows pretty much what's going to happen yeah. on set when you get the script the night before. Like you pretty everybody's going to play, do their thing. And it's there's going to be there are going to be few surprises um, where Shannon, you never knew what she was going to do. And so it was it was a lot of fun to work with her and to, you know, we'd shoot her first and just get a bunch of different reactions from her. And then. Uh, I'd like confab with Roger and then we would 
say, okay, let me let me do this because that'll that'll match that great reaction you have of her, and then I'll do this other thing because that'll if you want to use that other thing from her, then that'll help it cut together. And so we'd, you know, a lot of scenes we did like there's the scene where uh, Shannon comes in and uh, I faked a suicide mm-hmm. attempt. Um, in the script, she's supposed to come in, scream, and leave. And we, I feel like we did about 15, 20 takes of her going, ah, no, shit, Roger. Because she just knew it wasn't right. It mm-hmm. wasn't. And so I had asked for the gun that we'd had on set. So like one time she came in, I just pulled the gun on her. She like had a weird reaction there, which it still wasn't quite right. Um, finally, I just said, let me just, can I talk to her? So she came in and uh, I just started talking to her. I was like, and I think what I said to her was, tell me you don't, you're not in love with me the way I'm in love with you. And she's looking at me, she goes, you're sad, Sean. You're, you're sick. And she left, and that's what we used. Yeah, it's a great take. I, I love that quality about Shannon Tossman. I like, I it's, love it, in, and I wish she was making more movies. Yeah. I know she kind of walked away from it in a yeah, way. Yeah, she had a kid. I've written actually two or three scripts where I, while I was writing them, I pictured her that's as so a female funny. I wrote, I wrote a script that I actually pictured her as the female lead in, too. I just think she's got this amazing combination of – she. it's almost as if she has no vanity. It's a strange thing. It's like yeah. she's just so kind of in touch with the emotional world that she finds herself in mm-hmm. that I don't know. It's It seems impossible her – for her to fake it in a way. She can't fake it. She's incapable of faking it. I mean, I've seen her on talk shows early on where she just freaks out because she's like, oh my God, this is fake. This is weird. And she she does not, she cannot just swallow it and process it in a way that I think you kind of, you have to as an actor sometimes where it just gets driven out of you. All that kind of like voice in the back of your head that goes, this is bullshit. She just, she can't not listen to that. You know, she has to, she, it has to be like pure truth for her, I think. And then there's Ian Summerholder. And then there's Ian Summerholder. <laughs> I, I'm cutting Ian. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, you know, of course, people ask you about your scene with Ian Summerholder yeah. often and what that was like. I think you both had said that you had never, of course, kissed a man before. Yeah, every, so, time, every time I say that, you're, you call, you're, you're like, that's such bullshit. <laughs> I know. I, I, always I, call, I, I call James out, James out on that whenever he denies Ian, that he never kissed Ian, a man Ian before. Ian is the only boy I've ever kissed. He and I share a very... very <laughs> How many, how, many t- takes, how many times did you do that scene? Um, I feel like we didn't do it that many times, um, especially the close-up. I feel like I feel like I remember being bracing myself for like a whole day of making out with a dude, and then mm-hmm. I feel like it was over before. You know, I really, I feel like it was pretty quick. I feel like we only did two or three takes of a close-up. I do remember doing a couple different versions of one where Sean's like totally in control, totally alpha. Do one where it's kind of in the middle, and then the one we used, which is where it's just two boys playfully, right? You know. But there's no Get, tongue. Getting after it. There's no tongue. No, there was no tongue, which Ian was like really like very, very adamant that there'd be no tongue. He he seemed really grossed out by it to the point where I was almost a little insulted. I was like, well, dude, you know. What was the most like physically uncomfortable moment in that movie? Because I imagine there might be many. I imagine the suicide attempt. I imagine the snow in whenever whatever the weather the su- was like. The suicide attempt was the most uncomfortable because we were shooting in some abandoned asylum outside of Downey where someone had hung themselves. I'd actually committed suicide by hanging themselves in that building. And I was very sensitive to that. And I was like, there are some eyes watching this scene that does not find it fucking funny. And so I was really, I was very, very glad to be done 
with that scene. I feel like somebody was watching us and was not amused by it. That whole every all the dorm stuff was, was filmed in this asylum, and it was creepy as hell, man. Why, why, why there? What Roger the... discovered something from the film California First Initiative, where if you shot on state or government property, you wouldn't have to pay uh, taxes or something. So it was, uh, it was like a, a really you know economic decision, and you could make it into just about anything. But it's creepy. There, were, there were offices where phones were just left off the hook, like they left in a hurry. I don't know, some radiation scare. I don't know what, what had gone on there, but it was, it was creepy. Um, I don't think Sean Bateman is a wholly unsympathetic character. I don't think he's unsympathetic. I don't think he's unsympathetic in the book, and I don't think he's unsympathetic in the movie, though some people who uh, recoiled from the movie's vision of life right. tended to say tended to find all of the characters selfish and unlikable which is a very simplistic reading i of think course. of the movie oh it's so easy to judge people it's so yeah. easy to judge oh he's a drug dealer he does this he's an and look sean's an asshole but he's not unsympathetic i didn't find him unsympathetic like the to me i mean the i i looked at him as uh as somebody who was desperate to love and be loved and completely ill-equipped to handle that, and the disappointment. Yeah, well, he's constantly disappointed because he really he does want love. He yes. wants to know somebody, but at the same, he doesn't. He hasn't. He, he's not the first idea how to actually, you know, give love or receive it, or even like doesn't even know what it is. He's so damaged. And for, I mean, for me, it was like he, he, American Psycho was his older brother. Right to me, that was like he was raised in that household. How do you have the tools to really interact with a human being and a another human being on like a, a healthy level if that's where you came from? I remember first seeing the rough cut of the film, mm-hmm. and I think it was February two thousand and two. The movie was released that October, I believe. Yeah, and the rough cut was a little bit longer than the final uh, oh, movie. I think there were a couple of scenes, or a couple cafeteria scenes. Oh, that's right. That were that's right. cut, and uh, just little things that were that were excised. As I said in the opening, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, yeah. I was really busy then. I knew the movie was being shot. Mm-hmm. I had my own things that I was working on, and I remember flipping through Roger's script. I had not known. I had, I don't think I met Roger, but when he had really? finally actually. We might have talked on the phone. No, that's not true. We might have talked on the phone, but I don't think we met until the night of that screening. And so after I watched it, I thought, oh, my God, he got it in a way that definitely less than zero wasn't, right. you know, kind of took a huge dive from the meaning of the novel. It kind of inverted the whole meaning of the novel. And American Psycho was, that was fine. But Roger kind of captured, I don't know, the sensibility of that novel, I think, in a way that was more, I don't know, true to form, true to my form at least. And I got really buzzed off the movie. I got really excited. I said, okay, great. A terrific movie has been made. And then during that summer, there were a lot of screenings for the film in New York for Mm -hmm. press, bringing in what they like to call influential voices who, you know, so you'd have... Tastemakers. Tastemakers, right. The Tastemakers screening. And I went to a lot of them because I brought a lot of my friends like week after week because I, I just really loved the movie. And I was very surprised by the initial reactions, and the initial reactions were not great. I had friends who kind of 
found the movie puzzling. Yeah. They were alienated by it. They were alienated by the stylization. I think they were looking for a kind of naturalism that really isn't in Avery's handbook. I think a lot of movies get hit with that. I think people want a kind of realist, humanist movie. And if they don't get that, they think the movie's off or the people who made it don't know what they're doing or they're kind of lost. It's I think- so strange. I felt like the only way to ca- like to get to the truth in that was through – you know, it's satire, really. Right. It's satire. But it also, as I said before, within the stylization, you, Shannon, and Ian all do have repeatedly these real moments within Avery's version of these uh, these events and the way he presents them. And I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is so out of control. This is so kind of stilted and strange. And when the movie was released in September, in that September, October, October yeah. a lot of reviews took it to task for being, well, first of all, for being, you know, kind of overly raunchy. I, th- I know Roger right. Ebert said something about there is no way that there would be a party where naked women would be walking around in a, in a college campus. Well, yes, uh, that well, did happen. At not, o- not only did he, do, did he do that, may he rest in peace, but I, I took issue with his review because he said, you know, I thought maybe I missed something. So I watched it twice. The Roger Ebert said that. Yeah, I yeah. remember this. And, yeah. then he, and then he said, I, I, have a, I have a hard time believing that naked girls will be walking around a party. I'm thinking, well, maybe not one you were invited to. but Right. And then he said, um, but I have an even harder time believing that, uh, you know, somebody would be eating mushrooms and not even look at the girls, not even be checking them out. And I thought for a second, damn, really? Did I, like, did I not? Is there not a scene of me? And, I wa- and he said, I watched it twice. And then I watched the scene. And you see me eating mushrooms, clearly looking this girl, yes. this naked girl, up and down. And so I'm thinking, yes. did he really watch it twice? Because if he's going to like nitpick me for that, at least be right about it. Right. But yeah, people didn't get – you know what? I think I remember doing press. I remember doing radio press with Shannon actually. I'd done like Stern and I'd done something else. And I was reading all the reviews. And it was, uh, it was a weird weekend. It was the one-year anniversary of September 11th. So people were down about that. And then that DC sniper – Right. was happening too at the time and I think everybody was feeling like as a nation was just feeling kind of scared and wanted something safe and then to see this this movie where nothing was sacred and nothing was safe I think people really recoiled from it I think it just happened at the wrong the wrong time well there was also that weekend I remember very clearly that it was uh, there were the the highest number of releases of 2002 were all being were on that Friday. I think there was something like 18 movies were from <laughs> from majors and minis were being released yeah. on that Friday, and a lot yeah. of things just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Though I still don't know if in its initial release rules would have appealed to that wide an audience. And there was some controversy. Oh, again about how maybe Roger pushed it too far. The movie was initially rated NC-17. But oddly enough, not for sex or nudity, oddly enough for a suicide scene, for the suicide scene of not... For the the one scene that that actually grounds it all in consequence. Exactly. And the one scene, and the one (laughs) shot, that's the most kind of painful shot in the movie, Roger had to cut by, I think, three or four seconds, which is of a girl slashing her wrists in slow motion in a bathtub. And that was the shot that he had to keep trimming and trimming and trimming. And I remember watching subsequent cuts of the movie mm-hmm. that summer in New York with the tastemakers, yeah. noticing that, that the shot is getting shorter. 
But no, no, no. The, the, the razor goes all the way up her arm. The, this, this shot is getting short. And he, he had actually constructed, designed that scene to play with the Harry Nielsen song yeah. that was going on. And right when it goes into the chorus, that's when you see the razor going up gotcha. her arm. So the movie has this kind of NC-17 raunchy reputation. And people think it's too dark and that it's almost kind of an absurdist campus movie. And it does – not really well, and then disappears. And then over the years, as this so often happens, it has become kind of rediscovered as this cult classic yeah. uh, with the AV Club calling it one of the great lost movies of that decade. Yeah. And I run into people all the time who want to talk about the rules of attraction. I had a business breakfast this morning where somebody was like, hey, by the way, that's my favorite movie. I've seen it 18 times. I was like, really? And then again, of course, you know, Roger Avery did such a great job on that, has not made another movie since then, and it's been which 12 years, crazy. which is crazy because he's so talented. Yeah. But, you know, as things happen, just things don't come together, and he hasn't been able to, you know, put a movie together in that way. And I. Killing Zoe is also a very stylized movie, stylized yeah. as much as the rules of attraction is. And. I think that's really interesting. I mean, Tarantino is super stylized in that same way. Wes Anderson, is there anyone more stylized than yeah, Wes right? Anderson? I guess it depends on the stylization, on what the topic is within the stylization. I think sex, of course, makes people, a mass audience, much more uncomfortable in this country than violence does. Right. And I think that Paul Schrader, for example, is a very stylized director. And I think a lot, we were taken to task a lot for the canons about the stiltedness of the dialogue, the way the dialogue was delivered within this kind of weird zombie-like world where people are kind of talking to each other, but everyone's lying to each other. And right. so, of course, that's why Lindsay Lohan says to the woman whose boyfriend she's fucking, I'm sorry I haven't yet congratulated you on your PR company that you've – it's, like <laughs> it's like this line that Paul and I knew was going to have that effect, and yet people – consider it kind of like bad dialogue, stuff right. dialogue. But no, within the Paul Schrader universe, this is kind of how people talk. And you can go back to the initial meeting of Richard Gere and Lauren Hutton in American Jiggle on the Polo Lounge. The dialogue, if you're looking for a reality, is absurd with these two talking to each other. In terms of kind of a stylized noir movie, it has a kind of poetry to it. And you don't necessarily you know laugh at it in the way that i think some audiences giggled at that movie as some audiences felt the same way about the canyons i thought it was hilarious i thought it was a darkly comic i mean I, one thing i said to roger when we started shooting i said do me a favor don't ever tell me when i'm being funny I, right i right. don't i don't want to know just I'm, i want to play it completely straight and you know I mean, there's some stuff that I think is very funny. That, but movie. you know, it's, it's you have to play it, you know, straight. But you know, it's really weird because when you look back at the first season of Dawson's Creek, it's so weird to look back on it. Dawson's Creek was considered controversial. Oh God! I mean, I, it's I, crazy. Every interview I did was about oh, these two people sleeping in the same bed and they're not having sex. I was like, would you rather we were boning? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's fifteen year olds talking about sex. It was it was crazy. Very well, different times right now. Very different times. In terms of? Well, I mean, any, all the teenage shows that, that came after that, like Gossip right. Girls right. and the, the OC and all those, um, those, they were like, I mean, they were, I see, and those shows kind of burned out a little bit faster too because they just went straight for the sex and the betrayal and, the, and um, you know, they just amped it up. 
Although, well, another so good quickly. another good thing that happened, I guess, with um, all of us coming together on the rules of attraction is that we got to kind of collaborate with yeah. Roger Avery on a project. Uh, James, myself, and Roger kind of came about because of our reaction to the. I don't know, the financial, the economic. Yeah. And so we got together and we were thinking about doing, was it at first a film, a movie? I think we're going to do TV. It was was going to be be a a TV TV show. Actually, what happened was that we all collaborated on the first draft of a script. And then as time has gone on, James kind of took control of it and you know, has really written a really good script. And I don't think people know this about you, that you've written screenplays. No, and I, I put a, a fake name on it, actually. <laughs> a very good screenwriter. What? what oh, thank on, you. on which one? On, well, when I, on, on this one that we, that we had collaborated on. Yeah, I, whenever I gave it to people, I always put a fake name on it. Just because I felt like I got better notes that way. But I've always wondered, yeah, your reaction, because you and Roger had written... I, I kind of collaborated on two scenes, and then you guys both got busy. And we'd, we'd beat out the world. We'd, like, figured out some of the characters. And then I really wanted to do it, so I went off and kind of wrote it. And I was, I was always right. curious about your reaction when I said, by the way, Brett, um, I've, I've written it. You know, read it. Tell me what you think. Like, your, your reaction to the first time you read it. Didn't I think it was pretty good, and then I rewrote some of it? What did I do? I, I remember you saying, uh, you called me up, and you said, why do you need us? <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I know. I thought it was pretty – first- and, then, and, then, and, then, and then you were talking about Roger. Roger's like, well, you know, I mean, I've, you know, sometimes – and then you just go, I was shocked. Yeah. Well, kind of I think that you really connected with it because you uh, also want to play the lead in yeah. the show. show. Totally. And so that was another reason why I think you were much more I'm, – I'm not saying that Roger and I weren't – or not still passionate about it. But yeah. still, you, the stakes in it for you are a lot higher than yeah. in a way than it are for Roger and I because you want to star in it. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast at PodcastOne.com. So, your socks, boring colors, missing socks, worn out pairs. Starting fresh usually means choosing between cheap, poor quality blacks and grays or spending a fortune on designer socks. NiceLaundry.com helps you upgrade your sock drawer while saving you money. Six pairs, including shipping, is $39, or you can get a sock drawer makeover, that's 18 pairs, for only $99. The quality is awesome, and the patterns range from stripes to polka dot. And Nice Laundry even helps you make room in your sock drawer. Nice Laundry offers a complimentary recycling program and a significant percentage will be reused and repurposed, while the balance will be converted into recycled fibers. Visit www.nicelaundry.com slash Brett to get free shipping plus a special edition bonus pair with your first order. That's www.nicelaundry.com slash Brett. This film vault, what is it all about? We'll break it down. We're going to break it down. Hold on. We're going to break it down. We open every show with what we call Flick Fashion, where Brian and I talk about the most recent three films we've seen, films that are in theaters now, as well as... Films you can stream now, films you can uh, track down on TV. These are films that are accessible. And then we get into it in the next segment where we have a top five list, week in, week out, whether it's top five sports, top five war movies, top five racist characters. Mm -hmm. Yes, we try and be entertaining, but we definitely talk about entertainment. The Film Vault. On PodcastOne.com. That's O-N-E. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. I got a number. 
you actually started out. This is kind of like a macro yeah. topic. You started out your first public performances in an Edward Albee play. Yeah, uh, actually three one acts or whatever, whatever it was. It was and, a, yeah, it was a, a one act that was done in the same evening with yeah. And what do you ever? I mean, I'm sure you do. But I'm, when I was thinking about your career, I was thinking, what if Dawson's Creek never happened? Would you have ever been the kind of actor who would have said? All right, I'm just going to stay in New York and I'm going to go on auditions and I'm going to become a stage actor. You can sing and dance, right? Yeah. I mean, that you would just have explored that instead of coming to LA and doing the kind of grind that happens to an actor in their yeah. 20s. Yeah. Was that it, ever like an idea in your head? No, I like the most when I started um auditioning when I was like 15, 16 years old in New York, um my goal, my dream was to be in a Broadway play. Um, and have my, you know my picture on the theater outside with my name you know like written underneath, so that people would know that I that I'd made it. Like that was the the biggest, the most famous I kind of dared to like dream that I would be. And then, um, yeah, and I auditioned for movies and I auditioned for commercials, which I never got. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I auditioned for every pilot I was right for, but the, from the time I was fifteen to the time I was twenty, and only I only got cast in one, and it ran for six years. So I probably would have continued auditioning for pilots. I probably would have done a lot of theater. I probably would have waited a lot of tables. Um, you know, I don't know. That that thing just, just uh, took off and completely altered the trajectory. Like, my ideal career at that point was Mandy Patinkin. Right. Because he, he did stage. He uh, had great supporting roles in movies like The Princess Bride. And then he was on a great TV show. He was in Chicago Hope, and he was, like, was crushing that. And, and I felt like he was also the kind of famous where he could uh, you know, go to a mall and walk down the street, and, and nobody would bother him. Like To me, that was, that was kind of – I thought, you know, that's – if I'm going to calculate, that's, that would be the, the kind of career I'd want to have. And then I, at 20 years old, I became a, a teen idol, and it just – it changed everything. But I always had this kind of uh, – I don't know, just sensibility that – you know, I started out doing an Albie play. Like that's that's who I am. I'm doing the kind of you know WB thing, and it's great. And I'm really committing to it. I'm learning a ton about working on in front of camera. Um, but it was it was a kind of isolating experience to be all of a sudden so famous that those random conversations with strangers just didn't happen right anymore. If they happened, they were happening, and they were all about. It was the same conversation, and it was always about me. Well, it's you kind know, of strange. Another, I guess, problem and why you maybe could not have had the Mandy Patinkin role is something that actors really have to deal with or not deal with, I suppose, and that's looks, how you look. Right. Mandy Patinkin can sink into looking like a character actor, someone with your looks. It's a little bit more difficult for, I think, a casting director to say, oh, yeah, he's going to play the creepy, nebbish roommate (laughs) (laughs) or the down-on-his-luck kind of older detective. I mean, it was like the singer Brandon Boyd from Incubus was on the podcast, and we talked about how being good-looking for him basically altered his life in big ways that he found very unexpected and in high school especially he realized he was treated differently and he said that he noticed that pretty kids are 
not expected to be particularly bright, that he kind of got a pass. He kind of like saw himself moving through the world in a way much more easily than his counterparts who did not benefit from, you know, a genetic lottery. And he kind of rebelled against it. He grew a beard. He kind of like got scruffier. It altered the way that he saw how the world works, the order of things. Like, oh, this is going to happen to me because of this, something I really cannot control. And... He also said that it definitely made people think that Incubus, his band, wasn't as serious as he intended it to be with him as the front man because people talked about his teen idol looks a lot. And they kind of missed the point Hmm. of the craft and of the music. And he wasn't taken as seriously by critics, perhaps music critics, rock critics. Hmm. And he had conflicted feelings about it in terms of how he felt it pegs him in a way in life. And, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, I've been friends with very good-looking actors who, are, who aren't known, who go out on auditions and realize that they're only being kind of groomed or taken seriously for this one particular kind of role. Did you ever feel that kind of weighing in on you or were you always kind of okay <laughs> is, with it? Like when you were young. Is this the point that I complain about being good looking? That's exactly what Brandon Boyd said. <laughs> That's exact. But, but then he did. I mean, but, but, he but, did. He, but he waited. He said, no, look, great stuff. Of course, it makes things easier, but maybe he was thinking in terms of. I just think it. I mean, it, you know, it just it is what it is, and it it affects the kind of roles that you get. And what it did for me is it just. Um, I've been playing leading men since I was thirteen years old, in like, you know, the my children's production of Greece that I did with um, Danny Zuko. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that. You know, I I would get cast as that. Um, and to me, it was great because that's. Uh, I mean, I love I love playing <laughs> an, a, a role that has that kind of an arc. Not Danny Zuko necessarily, but just uh, you know, a, a, a leading man, a, a lead role, because you can really get into the intricacies, and it's mm-hmm. you know, building that arc. And so, that's kind of what I've always been cast it. I mean, it's. I've gotten into comedy recently, which has been interesting. I met an agent who said, man, you're a, you're a clown trapped in a leading man's body. Right. Which I thought was funny. Um, I don't know. It's just, I think what it is, it's, it does limit the kind of roles that people will, will buy you as, but then you just look at, you know, what, what, I don't know. It, it, it does, it narrows it down, but then there's a lot that you can do within, right. within a leading man category in terms of stories you can do and the kind of roles and the people you can play but then there's a whole thing of why be an actor why does one want to be an actor where does that come from does that come from some kind of darker conflicted place in your life you know uh, i mean what do you want to hide and be someone else i mean hugh jackman was talking about you caught me at a at a transitional point yeah so (laughs) he was talking about his whole like life has been in camouflage because he just plays role after role after role after role and that he just doesn't really even know not only what he looks like or who he is sometimes yeah I mean, what is it? And what what is this credo about never date an actor? I mean, where does a whole love hate relationship with actors come from? And why would someone want to put on makeup and pretend to be someone be else? else? I don't know. I the first time I remember knowing that I was going to do it was when I was in fifth grade, and my teacher said, "We're doing a play at the end of the year, and somebody in this class is going to get to play this great role." And I remember thinking, "Oh shit, that has to be me." There was no part of me that wanted to get up and sing in front of my classmates in fifth grade. I knew I'd get made fun of. I knew it'd be uncomfortable. But it was there was this sense of like 
I've gotten this far in life without having to do it, but now, now it starts. And I just knew that I would not be able to live with myself if I didn't do that. And then she'd bring it up throughout the year and I would get this pit in my stomach. And, oh God, that's right. That's going to have to happen at the end of the year. I don't know why I felt that this is something I've, I mean, without getting too high falutin about it, it was like, I just felt like this was part of my destiny that I was supposed to do. And so I had to do it. And the first time I ever got on stage, I was made fun of brutally in the playground. This was not something that I did for applause, really. I mean, my mom thought it was great. And some of my, my mom's friends were, you know, oh, you sang so nicely. But when you're playing kickball afterwards, I mean, it's, it's brutal. And so the first three or four times I ever got up on stage, it was like to the point where I thought, this isn't worth it anymore. I'm not going to do it. And then somebody kind of roped me back in and then... And then I met my first girlfriend doing Grease when I was like 13. And then I thought, okay, well, now people are starting to – this is starting to turn a little bit. And then I was 15. I, I wanted to to do it. I mean I had a therapy session at one point in like my later 20s. And somebody he was asking me, when do you feel like you're most in your body? And I realized the answer was when I was playing somebody else. And I don't know how fucked up that is, but um, – that at, the, at that time of my life, it was it was true. I was on uh, the Mark Marin thing this week, the What the Fuck podcast, um, and we were talking about how the need of a strong father figure in a guy's life, mm. and that we neither one of us had it, and it made our our teens, our twenties, our thirties, even difficult in ways that yeah. it wasn't for guys who had like a good relationship with their dad. They seemed to be more confident. They seemed to not be so needy with their male friends. Mark was talking about how he realized in his 20s he basically devoured every male friend he came in contact with in terms of a kind of, do you love me? Will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? This mm. kind of neediness that you demand from a guy because you didn't get that from the father figure you wow. had in your life. And I noticed that with my friends too. I noticed it with my male friends that the guys who are the most chill have like a pretty good relationship with their dad. And the guys who are the most kind of neurotic and uh, kind of floundering have no relationship with their father or a very, very conflicted one. And mm. it is just that key relationship in a boy's life. And I, and we haven't talked about this, I don't think, but did you have that kind of relationship with your dad? Because you seem very... I don't know, kind of together in a way that <laughs> my other friends who did not have that relationship with their dad. Yeah, I was lucky. My dad was uh, is uh, very, uh, very chill. My dad um, was, an, was an athlete, uh, played professional baseball, was like phenomenally talented, uh, played in the minor leagues for a little while, and then uh, quit when I was born, actually. Uh, realized he, wanted, he needed to get a new job and... So, but yeah, he was just always very chill, very solid, good guy. Um, never, never screamed at an umpire. Um, and was just really always there and, and, and supportive even when his 15 year old son said, I want to go into New York because I think I can do this acting thing for real. He at least understood chasing a dream to the point where he thought, all right, you know, go take a shot at it. A year and a half later when I hadn't gotten anything, I think he was kind of thinking, how much longer are we going to do this? But then, um, 
thankfully I got that Albie plan. I had a review in the New York Times that was my validation for, for being able to continue. So he thought, even though he didn't get the play, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, my dad is great. He'll say things like, when he saw the rules of attraction, he said, you know, it wasn't the kind of movie I would have stayed through had you not been in it, but I think you did a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you well, know, so like, like, just which is even an even better compliment that he, this, you know, that's not a movie that's his sensibility at all, right? But yet, he loves me enough to have stayed and watched the whole thing. So during the whole like craziness of like the DOS and stuff, did you ever have that moment like uh, where you think that the first year of being famous is exciting and cool? The first year of being famous is kind of exciting and cool. And then it's just every year afterwards that it becomes kind of this like, oh, God, I really I, try to like, you know. And the other thing that really bothers is bothersome about it to a degree. And again, this is white boy problems. Here, bothersome. Is I love like, that. It's such a bother. Well, it becomes I think what I think why so many people ultimately have anxiety over it yeah. and freak out over it and I did is that you have no control over it. It's there is no thing. control. You are surrendering control over every situation the second you step in public and it's you know listen it's not hard it's just tricky. Coal mining is hard like being a soldier is hard. I said bothersome. Be, being, being it's I said tricky. Bothersome. It can be bothersome. It's just tricky because if it, it's listen. There's so many things to be appreciated about it, and it's like you get so much energy for free that if you don't have commensurate appreciation for that, it's gonna burn you in some way. So, for me, I wish I had had a year grace period where I was like, "Wow, this is so cool." I had like a 15 minute grace period right. where I thought, "Oh wow, this is cool." Okay, all these girls showed up to for me to sign autographs. Okay, wow, we're running out of headshots. Okay, wow, girls are getting pressed against a barricade. Okay, this is a mob scene. This is chaos how do i get out of this okay now i'm being shoved in the back of a cop car to escape this whole mess like and then i would try to go out on the street and the same thing would happen i mean the second i got money and could actually go to a mall to buy christmas presents for my family i couldn't go to a mall (laughs) right and my reaction was at first was to uh reject it and and well this is all bullshit this is all bullshit nobody none, none, none of this is real and then at a certain point, I thought, well, you know, why don't I just enjoy this? And then that was completely unfulfilling. And then now I think I've gotten to a point where I recognize it as a way to to make money, as a way to get to tell the stories that I want to tell, to do what it is that I want to do, but also really a, a way to to just to kind of shed whatever light I can on the on the human experience for people. And really, ultimately, that's kind of why, if you're not in it to find the truth for other people, I don't know. I feel like that'll just you just burn out eventually. But but I have. I mean, you. I was literally in Israel last week, um, in a, the town of Sfat, which is like a population. I mean, a tiny, tiny population. Um, questioning. You know, I was at a holy site at four in the morning, really saying, do I even want to do this anymore? Do I want to be famous? Do I want to be an actor? I think I've been doing this for 22 years. I think I might be done with that part of my life. I, I think I may be ready to just walk away from it. I don't like the separation that it causes between me and other people when I meet them. I don't like how it makes me, you know, this kind of, at first you think, okay, yeah, I, I'm treated as special. I'll, I'll act special. I'll, and you get special treatment. And I just, I, like after all, you know, I'm 37 years old, it's just thinking, looking at the next 10 years of my life going, do I want to be getting off on that 
separation anymore. No, I don't. I want to connect with people. And then four days later, I was in Nashville at the CMT Awards in front of 60,000 people in a leather jacket presenting an award to Miranda Lambert. So <laughs> like that's, that's my life. And, but what I also realized, too, is I was signing autographs, is it, which, which what John Voigt told me when I first you know, asked him when I was 21 shooting Varsity Blues with him. And he said, listen, it's as simple as this. You're able to make somebody very happy by doing something very simple. And that's all that it is. He's like, and what a gift. Well, were you having this kind of crisis of faith due to what's been going on the last years with all the changes in the business, especially the cancellation of these two yeah. network shows? One, which was, I guess the last one, Friends with Better... Yeah. Friends, Friends with Better Lives. With, with Better Lives, right. I mean, this is just the nature of the business now. Five episodes and cancellation. Yeah. And a pretty like impressive cast. It's a great cast. It's so it was so crazy to like because listen, it's so hard to make anything that's funny, let alone a multi-camera sitcom shot in front of a live studio audience. And so to to like <laughs> climb that mountain and actually, you know, you, you, there's a script that you start with, and you cast it, and then the script has to be written for the cast, and then to actually get picked up, which the odds are against that happening, and then to shoot 13 episodes and to find it and have the writing the the, you know, the writing staff find how to write for these characters and you're on cbs which they're the people who know how to do this genre and um you know i did it listen i thought it'd be a fun challenge for sure and uh and it was and i thought you know making a group full of tourists laugh out loud it's not a bad skill to have or to Mm -hmm. hone um allowed me to put my kids to bed four to five nights a week i love that about it it's a steady paycheck um and then we yeah we we were launched we were preempted the next week aired four episodes and then CBS you know in a in a move that really makes sense for their shareholders said listen we've got this one slot and this why do or why would we want to put a sh- why would we want to put a show on that we don't own right that's that, that's the big thing I think people don't get so let me, so yeah we've got yeah. this other thing with Matthew Perry that we own so let's do that right and that's and that was the decision that they made and then. You know, you look at the rating, like after we were canceled, our ratings without any promotion at all were still higher than like the New Girl finale. Right. And so you, I, yeah, and I look at that, and it's my second canceled show uh, in two years. Right. The first was Don't Trust the, the Bee in Apartment 23 right. ran for two years and then was canceled. Um, and that was a show, and th- that one I, I recognized that it wasn't working for a network model. Right. Like they, they right. make their money by selling advertising time. You know when it's on, right there, and it, they were not. That show was not pulling in the numbers. Season two that made sense for them to keep it on there. So I, I totally got that, and I totally get CBS's decision too. It's just, uh, it really made me think: Why am I? What you know? What do I want to do next? And I think, um, I, I think I would rather just kind of follow, <laughs> follow what's in my gut, and 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 do that because Friends with Better Lives was. Listen, I love the people involved, and I really love the cast. Uh, but it was a straight-up commercial play, and I talked to you about this too. I was like, you know, am I am I selling out? Right. I am doing a CBS sitcom. Right. And um, yeah, and it's it's there to make people laugh. It's not. It's nothing intellectually mind-bending. It's not reinventing anything. Uh, it's network it, TV. It, it's network TV. It's right. there to make people laugh for a half hour at the end of their day. And you know what? That's a noble thing. And these are, and I was telling myself all these things. And it, <laughs> at one point, 
I knew I was, I, it, the, one, the one moment that everything kind of started to turn was at one point, because I think in an effort to try to get CBS to like it, there was people were saying, well, CBS likes dirty, so let's write as many sex jokes and dick jokes and poop jokes as we can. And we didn't really need to. The writers were really good. The chemistry of the cast was really good. But it was there's this thing that, like, that's what works on CBS. And at one point I said, guys, let's, this is feeling like two and a half men. Right. And somebody said, James, uh, saying that this show feels like the – you know, a mega hit that's run for 10 years right. and is the most profitable show on the network is probably not the best argument against it. <laughs> right, right. I was like, yeah, I guess I guess, I guess you're right. I think about James Franco a lot, Yeah, as I suppose maybe we all do, one degree or another, because he's <laughs> in, so... In different, in different ways, perhaps. Well, but. you know, I... <laughs> James has gotten a lot of flack for publishing a short story on in Vice magazine, the Vice fiction issue, and it's called Bungalow 89. Mm-hmm. It came out earlier this week to, of course, roars of outrage, disapproval, call, labeling Franco as a narcissistic jerk. Someone must be stopped. There were tons of articles about how oh we God. must stop Franco. And wow. the, sto- the story is actually not bad. You know, everyone, I think, automatically wants to hate it because it's James Franco. But I think he has talent in terms of his uh, his writing career. Not the greatest writer ever, whatever, but but he's okay. And Bungalow 89 is a very interesting story told from a James Franco-like character. Bungalow 89 refers to a, a, a room at the Chateau Marmont where he was staying while his house was being renovated. And it is kind of a rebuttal to the Lindsay Lohan fuck list, which James was on, and what he writes, the reality is that he never had sex with Lindsay Lohan, and this is what really happened, that the sad girl tried to have sex with him a couple of times, and he describes the moments where she tried to, and he... Uh, refused her, and because I think it, I think it's time somebody kicked Lindsay when she's down, don't you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> this is actually no, no, no. This is, is not, actually is, is not, this I'm, is I'm not a no. Bungalow eighty nine does not kick Lindsay. It's all. It's very gentle. It treats her very gently, but it also just puts into context what the reality is, yeah. rather than Lindsay's reality, which is kind of right. an unreality a lot of the time, right. but. I like how James Franco is doing what he wants to do. Now, I know he's at a place in his career where he can to a degree, but he doesn't have to teach. He doesn't have to publish books of poetry. He writes fiction. He stars on Broadway. He makes things like, you know, Interior Leather Bar, this gay film that he made about the making of cruising that he also stars in that is just filled with men like making out and having sex with each other on camera. And he also stars in Oz, The Great and Powerful in the same year. And he gets roasted. You know, he hosts the Oscars. Yeah. And he seems to have no filter. And in this way, he is one of the kings of kind of post-empire thinking. Right. In terms of I am what I am. This is who I am. And, you know, just deal with it or don't deal with it. Um, it's, ama- it's, it's amazing the reaction that he gets to doing all that. Well, you can't do all that. You know, well, I, I, I wonder what part of that is people's own just uh, – like regret that they never tried. Well, he gets slammed for being quote unquote narcissistic and self absorbed. I think that mirrors the culture. I think that kind of mirrors everything that's going on right now. Who isn't narcissistic? <laughs> who isn't and narcissistic? It's, it really, I mean, who? Do, yeah. I think he seems to have learned a lot in terms of you know where we are in the culture. I mean, everyone else, be damned. This is me. Take it or leave it. I'm not trying to win anyone's uh, affections. 
And he seems kind of miles away from the manufactured PR of the empire where you were on your best behavior. Uh, you didn't take semi-nude selfies of yourself and post them on your, you know, uh, your Tumblr. Or you don't write stories like Bungalow 89. And I'm just curious because I've gotten into a lot of conversations this last week about what a bothersome figure James Franco is from people and why we're both so fascinated with him. And yet I think a lot of the public overreacts to him and can't seem to process that he's just being himself or even maybe fucking with the idea of who we think he is. That's, I think, another thing that might be going on. But because he knows that if he just does this, that he's probably going to get this reaction. He just doesn't care. And in a way, that's kind of a fuckery in a way. This is where you and I disagree too. And this, I don't know, James, um, but I wonder how much of it. I don't, is, I don't either. I, I wonder how much of it is I don't care. And I wonder how much of it is I care so much. Well, he's an actor. Right. So. I mean, you, I, I, mean I, I really don't know. And I, I, you can be both. You know, more power to him. But I mean, it depends on where the dial is that day. You can be both. Both can be authentic. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think anybody's all one or all the other. No. The, Os- the Oscars to me seemed like somebody who ca- – I mean, listen, and who's not going to care about how they come across when you're in front of that many people with with no good material? Like I, it seemed like an effort in, in some kind of self-preservation. You know, I, he, he just seemed like he was kind of gritting his teeth going through the whole thing like, God, this is this – is, wow, this is really – like he just had the armor up. It, th- but, that was how I read that. I did, I, you read it as like him saying, fuck it all. None of this matters. I don't care. I read it as, as a poor guy who was thrown into this situation going, none of these jokes are funny. How do like, – like this is a disaster. Well, none of the jokes are ever funny on the Oscars and the Oscars are kind of in a way a disaster. <laughs> so I, I felt he escaped unscathed whereas – as we look back on Anne Hathaway, for example, who was taking it very, very seriously, and as a, the the coronation event of the year in Hollywood, right. as anyone who's you know watched the Oscars in the last couple of years, it's you know as you get older, it becomes kind of really this is what we're <laughs> celebrating. It was never more apparent. I don't think it was ever more apparent than this last year. So I think I don't know. I mean, I I I just think that Franco and to a lesser degree Jennifer Lawrence. Is is a new kind of youngish celebrity in terms of how they're presenting themselves in the world, where it just doesn't seem as manufactured, and they don't—they're not really playing by these kind of rules that we were all trapped in. I was yeah. as much as anyone when yeah. I was starting out as well. I said, "Oh, okay, an author's photo. Okay, I guess I, I'm going to wear a jacket and tie. Yeah, you're going to wear a jacket and yeah. tie. I'm going to have this author do it, and we're yeah. gonna, and you're going to be—you know—you're going to kind of be prepped on what you have to." How you have to present yourself and everyone more or less now is kind of feeling on their own and I think social media does that, that that narrows you down into not having to deal with so many handlers in a way. Mm-hmm. You kind of control your own joystick. I re- yeah, I, re- I remember looking when, when Twitter was like, oh, be careful what you tweet, be, be careful what you say to then all of a sudden, are you tweeting? Right. Are, are you? Because are you, you got to keep that up. Like it's... Um, you, it's almost like you're, yeah, you're not. It's, it's it's a way to be interesting, and and it's a way to stay relevant now. I mean, I, I think, yeah. I mean, what he's what Franco's doing is just kind of breaking down any doors or any limitations of okay, you're an actor, you're doing this, you're a movie star, you're going to do this kind of role, you're not going to do that kind of role. 
you're going to do this kind of project. You're not going to, but that you're going to keep it within this box. And he's just saying, well, fuck it. I'll, I'll teach. I'll get 10 degrees in whatever, whatever he's going to school. Um, yeah, why not? I mean, I think, I feel like a lot of the reaction is probably, I really think it's people looking at it going, well, I, I would do that if I, you know, and then kind of re, kind of self-loathing for the fact that they didn't, that they haven't done it or that they're not doing it or feeling like they're like they need some sort of inferiority that like they're less because they're not trying to be such a renaissance man and they feel like he's looking down on them that's what i feel like a lot of the negative reaction is to him or maybe they just don't like his dimples well i don't know every career is like with james franco's career every career is really made up of so many more disappointments than successes oh for sure and it is hard i guess not to stay or get bitter about the entire process there has to be something yeah. in it that keeps you going um, yeah so you know that's yeah, that, I, i'm just surprised that you are kind of like so together com- compared to like what's been going on the last year with this show working on the show getting canceled like that i mean i would just imagine that as you said earlier i don't know what i'm going to do next really in a way i mean making films directing you know you know what saved me has actually been writing I mean, it's and it's funny to say that because I, I, I mean, I don't talk about it because nobody really knows I've been doing it, but you know I've been doing it, mm-hmm. um, and that's where I can actually you start to express some of the things that I want to say, and and start to create some of the projects that I want to create, and I think that's kept me sane in the in the in the wake of you know a year's worth of work on a on a sitcom and and all the energy and all the time and all the agonizing over this and that beat and this run through in the studio run and episodes that aren't even fucking airing you know uh you just go god that seems like a big waste of time but you know what i what i realized too especially i mean as, as an actor auditioning is that energy is never wasted you, know, you put energy into a role and you audition with it and you spend all this time getting to know this guy and creating this character and, and digging down and channeling whatever it is that, that needs to embody them. And then you don't get it. And then you move on. You know, time wasted? No, I don't think so. You've, you've, you have that in your repertoire now. You know, you've kind of carved out that space for that, for that person to live somewhere in your psyche. So, um, I don't know, you can use all of it. The Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. You know how important it is to be in the right headspace before you start writing. That's why when you need to listen to music, you should turn to R-Tunes. R-Tunes is a streaming music service that blends indie artists with your favorite mainstream artists. Easily discover new artists, listen to great music, and get better sound quality than Pandora. R-Tunes handcrafts their music selection so you don't have an algorithm choosing the same music over and over. Also, artists and comedians sign up free today, start uploading your music, and get paid. You'll also gain exposure next to me. Mainstream artists. 
Brett Easton Ellis podcast listeners will receive three months of unlimited skips and no ads by signing up at Artunes with a Z dot com and using promo code Brett five O. Then simply download the iPhone or Android app for your device and receive another three months as a thank you. That's Artunes with a Z dot com. Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. Download a brand new episode every Monday at podcastone.com.